Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the COVID global economy to you. And this week, we're changing the frame. I'm not going to be bringing you on-the-ground insights from Atlanta or Madrid or anywhere else, because I had an opportunity to ask two of the biggest names in economics where they thought the world was heading. And I found a fascinating contrast between them that I'd like to share with you. It wasn't in their basic analysis of what was happening, because they both saw a lot of the same worrying global trends, and they both thought that many of them were likely to be exacerbated by the COVID crisis. The difference lay in whether they thought there was anything anyone, any government, any of us, might be able to do to put us on a better course. I talked first to Nouriel Roubini, Professor of Economics at New York University, and then it was Nobel Prize-winning economist Professor Joe Stiglitz of Columbia University. It was all part of Bloomberg's Global Invest Conference, which this year was held virtually over several days and multiple time zones. I'll let you hear for yourself which of those two was more upbeat about our capacity to change our fate. Let's just say you won't be surprised to hear Rubini's nickname is Dr. Doom. In the third quarter of the, this year, there's going to be a recovery after a very severe recession in the first and the second quarter. So for a quarter or two, it may look like a V-shaped recovery. But the way I differ from consensus is that Consensus believes that by next year, the V-shaped recovery is going to continue, that growth is going to be something like 6% in the United States, three times as much potential, while I see the recovery being strong only in the third quarter and then fizzingly out by the fourth quarter and then becoming very anemic by next year. And the main reason is not just the fact we're going to have a second or a third wave, but if you think about it, after the global financial crisis, uh, firms that were firing workers and they rehired them in a way that was different from the past. Not formal jobs, not full-time jobs with good wages and good salaries and benefits, but gig workers, part-time workers, hourly workers, freelancers, contractors. This time around, we've shed already something like between 20 and 30 million jobs. And when the rehiring is going to occur, that type of precarious job is going to become the norm. Most firms are highly leveraged. They have to survive and thrive by cutting costs and saving more. How are they going to do it? By reducing labor costs and first firing people and then rehiring them in a more flexible way. The trouble is that what's my labor cost is somebody else's labor income. And as the corporate sector deleverages by spending less, saving more and doing less capex, then there'll be a more anemic recovery of labor income because there is more precarious jobs. There'll be a very large unemployment rate. And even the households have to be more cautious. They have to be more risk averse. 40% of US households have less than $400 of liquid cash in the case of an emergency. There'll be more risk aversion. That implies less spending, more saving, less capital spending, less residential investment. And that's why the recovery is going to become like a U. But I think that people are pricing in expectation for recovery of growth and earning that are totally not consistent with the fact that the recovery of the economy is going to be a U rather than a V. Just to push back a bit on, on some of that, you, what you've described, one way of putting it would be that, that, that there is a system that came into this that had flaws, uh, many of which have, inspi- have inspired populism, the rising inequality, and you believe that the response to the crisis will be exacerbate those things. And it's, that's certainly what many people are forecasting, that we're going to see a further further inequality 
and a further damaging of employment rights and labour income, which will ultimately, in a kind of Marxist way, seeds that sows the seeds of its own destruction. But there is a view that says, you know what, this has been a wake-up call, this crisis, and even the, the people who doubted before that you need major reform to make this a more inclusive world uh, are now uh, going to realise they have to do something different. Do you give any credence to that, whether in the US or anywhere else, that actually you could have a, a reset coming out of this that helps to slow down or even reverse some of those trends that you're talking about? Many firms right now are either bankrupt or on the verge of bankruptcy. They have to do and take action to try to survive. And what are the actions that have been taken in the United States? We lost in the United States in the last few months uh, many more jobs that we created in the last decade. Uh, depending on how you measure it, we've had between 20 and 30 million people have lost their jobs. And the corporate sector first fires them, and then when they're going to be rehiring them, they're going to do what they've done after the global financial crisis, uh, gig workers, contractors, part-time workers, hourly workers, freelancers. That's a reality. I don't see a radical change in the United States in terms of economic policy. Yes, uh, if Trump were to be losing the election, that's an if. And if Biden were to be coming to power, maybe economic policy is going to be coming slightly more progressive. But there are major forces, including also technology. The digital disruption is going to imply that over the next few years, there'll be many more jobs that are being destroyed, not just by globalization, trade, or migration, but by technological innovation that is capital-intensive, skill bias and labor saving. There's going to be disrupting millions of other jobs. For example, more automation, more robotics. The fact is going to be reopened in North America, not going to be full of workers, going to be full of robots. So unless there is a very radical change in economic policies, the trend of globalization, of technology, of the weakness of labor, of unions and so on, imply that labor is weak, capital is mobile, and the entire system has been essentially one where income has been going on from the workers to capitalists, from wages to profits, and from those who spend more to those who save more. And I'm not sure that these major trends are going to be reversed anytime soon. Just uh, moving on to the, the debt piece of your of your analysis, I think there's, there's been a view, perhaps unspoken, uh, those who have a more optimistic view of the next five to 10 years look at, and are investing in the markets on the basis of it, that uh, we're either going to have uh, more of the same coming out of this, namely very low inflation, low interest rates, but with that, the affordability of this much higher debt stock, corporate and public debt around the world, or we might get inflation and that might cause some bumps down the road, but in the meet, it will at least make that debt easier to, to grow out from underneath. Your view is actually that that's, that's just too optimistic, that you can have the inflation without really resolving the debt issue. Is that right? Well, my view is that certainly in the short run, I agree that there are more deflationary rather than inflationary pressures. There is a massive slack in goods markets, in labor markets, in real estate, in energy and commodities. So this year, next year, there'll be lowflationary and deflationary pressures. But what I'm pointing out is there were two major forces that kept inflation low for the last decade. One was globalization, 
and now we're in a process of deglobalization. And the second one was major technological innovation that were also increasing productivity, reducing costs. And right now we're going to have a digital wall being built between US and China. And we're going to have two separate AIs, two separate internets, two separate 5Gs, two separate telecom system, and so on and so on. And for example, we may for geostrategic reason not want to use the Huawei 5G, but the Huawei 5G is 30% cheaper than the one of Nokia and Ericsson and 20% more productive. So if you're going to install a 5G network that's going to be not Huawei, it's going to be 50% more expensive than before. That's a negative supply shock. So both technology and deglobalization imply negative supply shocks. Now, last time around, when we had negative supply shocks and we had easy money, easy fiscal in the 70s with the two old shocks of 73 and 79, we ended up with inflation, stagnation, recession, and inflation. So either this debt become unsustainable or if we're going to try to wipe them out within inflation, then we're going to have a trap of stagflation. Historically, people who have bet against integration have tended to be wrong. Many people would say, looking at the trends we've had over the last few years, even if globalization slows down, it can't, it's not going to reverse and it could still continue to cause uh, bring enormous benefits, uh, particularly perhaps to developing countries and countries across Asia especially. So what is it about now that you think is different from the other times when people have declared the end of integration? I'm not predicting for the time being a hot war between US and China. I think that given the asymmetry of power, the conventional and unconventional between US and China, that's unlikely. But we're seeing every day an escalation of this Cold War. And that's already leading to a process of deglobalization. And it's not just deglobalization on trade, but most importantly, on technology. And today, those 5G networks are running our phones, but tomorrow they're going to be running our system of, say, autonomous vehicle, making sure that millions of them don't hit each other. And tomorrow, pretty much every piece of consumer electronic in the Internet of Things is going to have a 5G chip, even your lowly Chinese toaster or coffee machine or microwave. And therefore, if you're not going to use the 5G of China, you're not going to also want to use the toasters or microwaves or coffee machines of China because they're potentially a listening device if you believe that there is a backdoor from Huawei's 5G to the Chinese government. So that's where the war on tech becomes also a war on trade and it's going to only escalate over time. Unfortunately, I think that's the trend we're facing. Of course, it's not black and white. I'm not saying there's not going to be any trade of any sort, but we are in a trend towards gradual but persistent deglobalization. Could there be good news here? I mean, many people are investing in high-tech companies that seem to do fantastically well. It seems odd to say we're going to have lots of technological change but it's not going to produce growth and it's not going to produce income for so someone which might then be redistributed. Is there no good news here? Well, the difference is in the previous industrial revolution, jobs went from agriculture into the industrial sector and from the industrial sector to the service sector. But what's happening right now is not only that the factory of the future is going to be a bunch of robots and machines and just maybe one person 
manning these machines, but now the same process of AI, robotics, automation is completely disrupting tons of uh, jobs in the service sector, from retail to transportation to uh, education to government services to pretty much anything under the sun. So those who say we're going to create other jobs, it's not clear what are going to be those jobs in the future are going to be created. For every job that is created by Amazon, there is on average 10 jobs in retail that are disappearing. So I think that's a difference compared uh, to the past. And then for the time being, all this technological disruption has not led at the macro level to data that are showing an increase in productivity. Eventually, of course, if there's going to be a significant technological disruption, there may be an increase in productivity. The economic pie is going to become larger, but since technological innovation is capital-intensive, skill buyers and labor saving, those who own financial and real capital are going to do well. Those that are in the top 20, 30% of distribution of skills, education, human capital are going to do well. But if you are a a blue-collar worker with low skill or medium skill, but now even if you are a white-collar worker with low skills or medium skills, your income and your job is going to be disrupted completely by technology. And therefore, the issue is not whether the economic pie is bigger, but what's going to be the distribution of the benefits. And the distribution of benefits is going to go to capital and those that are very, very high skilled. And everybody else is going to be left behind. And therefore, the tension and the political backlash against it is going to become severe. So the pie is going to be bigger. The distribution of the benefits is going to become even more uneven. <clears throat> okay. Well, Nuro Rabini, I guess so. The answer to is there any good news? It's very it's it's hard for you to see the good news, but we will be uh, seeing if uh, Professor Joe Stiglitz has a different perspective later on. But in the meantime, Nuro Rabini, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> So that was Muriel Rubini at the Bloomberg Global Invest Conference. Joe Stiglitz was next. And you might remember I interviewed him about the future of capitalism last year for Stephanomics. I started by asking whether he shared Dr. Doom's gloomy diagnosis. Well, I think the critical issue is what policy governments pursue. Uh, the second critical issue, of course, is the pandemic itself. And we don't know when that will be brought under control. But assume that we got that under control. The big issue is how will government's policy respond? And we need to be frank. There's a lot of uncertainty about that. Uh, for instance, one side says we need to provide the unemployed with assurance that we're going to continue the unemployment insurance as long as the pandemic uh, continues. It's what we did in 2008 uh, in the global financial crisis. The other side is much more hesitant to do that. And now picking up a point that Norio emphasized, a big factor dampening the economy is uncertainty, precautionary behavior. And that lack of assurance in the part of government that it will be there is going to exacerbate the kind of uncertainty that's going to lead to limit, limits on consumption and investment. So how can governments confront that head on? I mean, you, you're quite right that we've seen this precautionary savings soar. 
how should a government try and uh, get over that problem? Because, as you said, we don't know if there's going to be a second wave. We don't know how long this recession is going to be. It's completely rational for businesses and households to hold back. So the first thing is we need to have an assurance that government programs will continue so long as the pandemic uh, continues. You know, in the beginning, back in March, uh, people thought this was going to be a three-week lockdown, four-week lockdown. Certainly by the beginning of June or the end of July, things would be under control. No one thinks that today. We're worried about a second wave, a third wave, a perpetual wave. So we need the assurance uh, that uh, the government isn't uh, now providing. Some countries are thinking about more specific ways of what you might be calling collectivizing some of the risk. For instance, telling companies, if you borrow to make an investment and the pandemic uh, continues, we will allow you to extend the payments. So you don't, you know, sometime you're going to want to make those investments, make them now, and we'll bear some of the risk. Uh, some countries have provided, uh, for instance, time-dated spending vouchers to encourage people to go spend now. There's underemployment. From a social point of view, this is good. But we understand your fear about getting in debt. And uh, this is a way of encouraging spending today. There is a lot of support going to businesses now, but we don't know for sure that that is going to go into investment or even into jobs. And uh, at Bloomberg, we've looked at how many big companies in the U.S. have been raising bonds very cheaply, raising a trillion dollars worth in so far this year, more than in the whole of last year, on the back of the Fed easing policies. Um, but they're also cutting jobs. So do you think there should be more strings attached to some of this support? Yes, there was an interesting study that pointed out that particularly the PPP program seems to have had no effect on retaining employment. It was an extraordinarily badly designed program and even worse, the implementation with the money going to those who were most connected to the banks and to those who least needed uh, the money. Uh, if, you know, government has never spent so much money and we ought to have a say on how that money is used. Uh, it shouldn't be a blank check. Uh, you know, when I was at the World Bank, we always put conditions. Uh, I thought sometimes they put too many conditions. But putting certain basic conditions that you retain your employees, that you treat your workers in a decent way, that you move toward a green economy, uh, that we help, you know, with a vision what kind of an economy do we want emerging from the pandemic? To me, this is one of the, my major criticisms of the programs. The idea behind them was we ought to go back to where we were in January 2020. There were a lot of problems with the American economy and the global economy in January 2020. Uh, inequality, uh, the health status of Americans was going down, not very not very good. Uh, we hadn't begun the green transition. So there were so many things that we need, knew we needed to do. This was an occasion with the government spending so much money to help move our economy along in the right direction. 
So I guess going back to the longer term, you know, can central banks be part of that longer term answer? Should we, you know, is this the end of an era of independent central banks? They shouldn't be worried so much about inflation. They should be helping to uh, tackle inequality, raise wages. What's what's your view? Uh, First, I think there is a limit to what central banks can do, but they can do a lot. So they're really important. I'm I'm very supportive of the broader view that they seem to have taken on. I've always criticized them in the past for not taking into account the effects of their policies, for instance, in increasing inequality. They played a big role in increasing wealth inequality. And it seems that today they are taking that more into account Partly because that's very much related to their main mandate. If you have increasing inequality, you're going to have deficient aggregate demand. So you cannot ignore the impact on inequality. You know, the IMF has put inequality at the center of their agenda. And when they first did that, Dominique Strauss-Kahn said, we're doing this because our mandate is making sure that global growth is strong, and you can't do that without at least paying some more attention to inequality. Thinking about the whole world, um, we've done, our economists have looked at what response uh, emerging market economies have been able to do uh, to COVID compared to the enormous uh, of kind of money flowing out of uh, finance ministries around the developed world and indeed all the central bank money printing. And it's obviously, it's a fraction. Uh, most of these emerging market companies have not been able to, if you like, fill the hole that's been left by COVID or might be left by COVID. Now, what are the risks coming out of that for the whole world? But what should we also be trying to, what do you think is the best answer to that for helping them? Well, we are a globally integrated economy. And we should remember that it was the emerging markets that helped bring us out of the 2008 crisis. Uh, We will not have a robust global recovery unless uh, all the uh, world is recovered, and that includes the emerging uh, markets. The emerging markets uh, are clearly more vulnerable, both in terms of health and they don't have the economic resources, as you pointed out, to respond anywhere near to the extent that the United States uh, or even Europe uh, have responded. Uh, There's going to be a lot of countries that are going to be facing sovereign debt problems that won't be able to repay their debt. And there needs to be uh, a way of restructuring those debts. So far, the private sector has given every indication that they don't understand that there's a pandemic going on. They have no humanity. You know, they talked about social responsibility. They talk about all these fancy words about now we get it. We understand we have an important uh, uh, role to play in our society. And they're acting in just the opposite way. A dollar for them is worth thousands of people dying in the emerging markets. So I think this is going to be a, a, a critical moment for global capitalism. If the global financial markets continue in their hard-headed way of squeezing these emerging markets, Rubini was talking about the battle 
uh, that's going on, the new Cold War. Well, American-style capitalism is going to take a beating if America's financial markets continue to behave in the way that they've been behaving. I guess that was partly uh, at heart of some of the things I was asking Nouriel, because he seemed to see no potential that capitalism might save itself in the way that perhaps they might have done. We might have said that uh, there was a reset in the 30s in the US and in the 40s in response to some of the threats uh, of populism and the threats to capitalism. One question has come in from Michael uh, Chekim. Uh, Can market economies change reform to be more socially, environmentally equitable, fairer, all the things that you're talking about, while with companies still being profitable? I guess that's the question. And if, if, if capitalism does reform itself, can it still make money? I think the answer is absolutely yes. There is responsible capitalism. I wrote a book called Progressive Capitalism. I really believe that we can have a profitable capitalism that serves all of our society. Uh, you have to change some of the rules of the game uh, and, and you can't exploit the environment in the way that they did. You can't exploit the workers in the way that you did. But uh, you can actually, I think, will have a stronger, more robust capitalism. The other question is the politics. Uh, can we change the politics in a way that there will be a change in the way the market economy works? Quite frankly, I'm actually hopeful on that. You know, many of the countries in Europe have created a kind of social democracy where they've tried to temper capitalism. And in many of the social indicators, they do much better than the United States less inequality, and some of them are actually quite dynamic economies. So uh, we actually have some proof uh, that one can have a, a more socially just and environmentally friendly capitalism. You mentioned populism, and uh, I guess it comes down to this much bigger question about whether when we look back, will we say that this was a real turning point for the global economy where long existing trends kind of came to the fore and forced change uh, or whether it will force up, whether will it, some of those negative trends will actually accelerate you know after the global financial crisis the legacy of that was to shake up global politics and have populism but populism that often pointed in a deep, not in a constructive in a in a worsening direction you think there's more chance of a sort of positive form of populism coming out of this, that we will shake everything up and actually end up heading in a better direction? Or is it still to play for? Uh, I think it's still in play. And I won't call it populism, but I do think the November election in the United States is going to be a critical moment. The uh, uprising, you might call it that, in the United States for racial justice really showed a, a dimension of the United States solidarity that had not been evidenced uh, before. I take that as a sign that uh, ideals really do matter and that the conception of what a country together means really does matter. So I'm very hopeful that in November, there will be an outpouring and that will lead the United States to go in a different direction, that will have, a, I think, a very big effect 
on the direction in which the world goes. The One of the issues you were talking about before is the new Cold War between China and the United States. Uh, and it's clear that those tensions are very strong. But it's also clear that we share the same planet and we are going to have to work together to deal with the problems of pandemics, the problems of, of uh, climate change. And so the question is, in the midst of a you know, reordering of the world, are we going to be able to get cooperation across governments that fundamentally may disagree very deeply with each other? You know, you're, 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 you could imagine yourself in a lifeboat, the ship is sunk, and there may be some people in that lifeboat that you really don't like, but that's not the reason why you should sink the lifeboat. And uh, maybe that's a metaphor to say, you know, we're in this together. There there are some uh, others that we may not agree with, but we have some common problems facing the pandemic, climate change, global peace that we have to work together on. Well, Professor Stiglitz, it's a pleasure. As you say, ideas matter. And it is great to hear someone who I know has a very clear sense of what is wrong in the world give us such an upbeat sense of what could change and the potential that's there. So uh, I appreciate that um, particularly. You're looking at a lot of the same facts as Nouriel Roubini, but actually thinking that we can change course. So thank you again. Thanks for listening to Sevenomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights, I promise, on how COVID-19 is turning the global economy upside down. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics throughout the week, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Nouriel Rabini, Professor Joe Stiglitz, Mark Miller and the entire Bloomberg Live production team. Lucy Meakin is the acting executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. 